The early 1950s was a turbulent time for Americans, as the Korean War's end gave way to a much colder and insidious kind of war. Communism, a form of government that, in theory, sought to glorify the working class, was quickly becoming the stuff of nightmares for politicians here at home, and was viewed as being categorically opposed to American capitalism. Soldiers who had been captured and held as prisoners of war in Korea began returning to the United States. Rather than speaking of the horrors of communism, some began spouting communist propaganda, while others confessed to committing atrocious war crimes for which there was no evidence and which the U.S. government denied ordering. Still others refused to return to the United States at all. These instances led high-ranking officials to believe the communists had brainwashed these prisoners of war, or worse yet, that they had found a way to control their minds. It was suspected that the Soviets had developed effective mind control techniques by incorporating the use of different psychoactive drugs. This idea led to some pressure within the newly formed Central Intelligence Agency to develop their own version of mind control as a way to combat the evil communists. Alan Dulles, who was the director of the CIA in 1953, made public statements decrying the Soviet mind control experiments, stating they went against both American and human values. However, despite his public statements, that same year, Dulles privately allowed a man named Sidney Gottlieb to begin one of the most infamous human experiments ever conducted. Gottlieb, an American chemist and poison expert, headed the CIA's chemical division. He believed LSD was a powerful drug that could be used to influence and perhaps control the minds of unsuspecting individuals. While LSD had not yet arrived in the United States, Gottlieb had heard of its use in Europe and arranged for the purchase and shipment of all of the LSD in the world at the time. Dulles named Gottlieb the head of a series of experiments called MKUltra in 1953. Over the course of the next decade, over 150 experiments would be conducted at 80 different institutions in the United States and Canada. Some of the participants were not told they were participating in a research experiment, while some were lied to about the purpose of the study or about what they were exposed to. None were ever told that it was the CIA who was conducting the research. Many of the participants were from vulnerable populations, including young and impressionable college students such as Ted Kaczynski, and incarcerated criminals such as organized crime boss Whitey Bulger. And while many participants were unknowingly given LSD, some were given other substances like psilocybin, mescaline, MDMA, heroin, and methamphetamine. Others were subjected to physical and mental abuse, sensory deprivation, hypnosis, high doses of electroshock therapy, and something called psychic driving, where individuals were drugged and forced to listen to tape-recorded messages played on a constant loop, often up to half a million times. In a particularly disturbing set of experiments called Operation Midnight Climax, the CIA used prostitutes to lure men into a makeshift brothel. Once inside, they were given LSD-dosed drinks without their knowledge and observed by agents behind two-way mirrors or through hidden cameras. In another infamous incident in 1953, CIA agent Frank Olson fell to his death from a hotel window in New York City, having unwittingly ingested a large dose of LSD a few days earlier. While his death was initially labeled a suicide, his family always contested this, believing the CIA was to blame in some kind of conspiracy. 
The family had his body exhumed in 1997 so an autopsy could be performed, the results of which indicated Olson had sustained several injuries prior to his fall, leading them to suspect that he was actually murdered by the CIA. As the project continued, the CIA actively sought to keep these experiments secret. In 1957, the Inspector General of the CIA wrote, Precautions must be taken not only to protect operations from exposure to enemy forces, but also to conceal these activities from the American public in general. The knowledge that the agency is engaging in unethical and illicit activities would have serious repercussions in political and diplomatic circles and would be detrimental to the accomplishment of its mission. Despite their efforts to conceal MKUltra, in 1963, a staff member with the CIA Inspector General learned of the experiments and called for the immediate cease and desist of the research, on the grounds that these experiments violated the new research guidelines prohibiting the use of non-voluntary subjects. While the experiments were curtailed, the CIA persisted. It was not until 1973 that the study was finally terminated due to new governmental investigations into MKUltra. In an attempt to conceal information about the project, then-CIA Director Richard Helms ordered all documents related to MKUltra to be destroyed. In the end, only about 20,000 documents remained after the purge, this due to a clerical error regarding where they were stored. In 1977, the remaining documents were released to the public, detailing some of the atrocities of the MKUltra experiments and confirming the suspicion of many that the United States government had been running mind control experiments on their own citizens without their knowledge or consent. This episode is about the MKUltra mind control experiments. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. So, David, yeah. we recently did an episode on conspiracy theories, and we talked about some reasons people believe in conspiracy theories. And I have to say, I think MKUltra is one of those reasons. No question. This one's a famous one. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a story that seems just too sinister and wide-reaching to be true, yet it was. Yeah, you know, in the in the episode about conspiracies, we, we touched on that. I sort of touched on that at the very end, which was this idea that it's not a conspiracy theory if it's true. It's just fact, right? Right, and I think that the people that felt that this was going on for a long time, they were probably labeled as just being kind of conspiracy theorists and that there wasn't evidence for it. And then when all of this came to light, they were vindicated 
Well, with something like this, it would probably be pretty easy to make somebody look crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To gaslight them. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You know, what I think is very interesting about these experiments is this desire for mind control. When I think of mind control in the context of the MK Ultra experiments, I imagine someone who's basically, they've become a puppet. You know, their free will is completely gone. Yeah, like a zombie or something like that. Yeah. We talked in episode one of Waco about the idea of brainwashing. And as I was thinking about these experiments, I wondered where brainwashing fit in with all of this. What we discussed in the context of cults were the conditions that made brainwashing or thought reform, um, as it's also called, more likely. And we talked about Dr. Lifton's eight criteria, if you remember. Mm -hmm. But the point was that thought reform is a process and that it takes time. And in the MKUltra experiments, it seems to me that they were looking for a way to kind of hijack people's thinking in a short and dramatic manner. So it wasn't just brainwashing. I mean, they wanted complete control over a human being. Okay. So journalist Stephen Kinzer spent several years researching the MKUltra experiments. He wrote a book called Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control, which was released just in September of 2019. In his book, he talked about mind control being a two-stage process. The first was to, quote, blast away the existing mind, while the second stage was to then create a new mind in its place. As part of the first step, Gottlieb was searching for some outside agent that could take hold of a person's thinking and break down their psyche so the government could rebuild it in a manner where the person would do what they wanted. What they were looking for were ways to overcome a person's moral beliefs and their general temperament, getting them to do the government's bidding at will and, and do kind of the dirty things that, that most people wouldn't do. They also looked for a way to manipulate and crack communist spies so they could obtain intel that would be useful in winning the Cold War. So is mind control of the kind sought by the CIA even possible? I think if there's one thing the MK Ultra experiments taught us was that it was not. What did happen was some suffered significant brain damage from high doses of electroshock. Those young people who were predisposed to psychotic illnesses were thrust into psychotic breaks from high doses of LSD. And even those without underlying mental health issues were traumatized by their experiences. So why did they choose the methods that they did? LSD was a relatively new substance as it was discovered in 1938. Just as an interesting aside, it was discovered by a Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffman, who was working to develop a new respiratory and circulatory medicine. One of the substances he was working with was ergot, which we discussed during our episode on the Salem witch trials, if you remember. Yeah. Ergot has hallucinogenic properties. Anyway, he put his research aside for a few years, but in 1943 came back to it. In the course of his work, he accidentally got some of the LSD on his skin and absorbed it. He noticed its intoxicating and hallucinatory properties, and a few days later decided to ingest an even higher dose. Within an hour, he was starting to feel the effects, and he decided to go home. 
Well, he rode his bike to and from the lab, and as he was riding his bicycle home, the full effects began to take hold. He started tripping. He did, on a bicycle, and nobody had ever done this before, so you can imagine that was probably pretty scary. Hmm. And he initially described the experience as unpleasant, as he felt paranoid and anxious. Um, But what was interesting is that later on, he began to enjoy the hallucinatory experiences. So Hoffman wasn't successful in creating the respiratory medicine as he initially intended, at least not with regard to LSD. But he did discover a way to synthesize one of the most controversial substances of our time. So getting back to MKUltra, Gottlieb had heard about LSD, and it has been said that he was the person responsible for bringing LSD to America. Again, not for good, but because he thought it would allow him to control people's minds. He thought that the hallucinogenic effects could be used to either scare people into providing information or that it would make people lose their minds to make way for programming from the CIA. He also believed it would make people vulnerable to brainwashing. And while reality is distorted when someone is under the influence of LSD, with high doses, individuals are preoccupied with illusions and hallucinations. They may also become delusional and they experience general feelings of intoxication and just being out of touch with reality. In this state, they would be unlikely to provide detailed, coherent information, and there's no evidence indicating that suggestions made to a person who's under the influence of a high dose of LSD have any particular ability to stick. The same goes for electroshock therapy. So I think that sometimes people are kind of surprised to hear that we still use electroshock therapy, Um, It's not used near as frequently as it was back in the 1950s, but even today at low doses and under sedation, it's a treatment that's been found to be effective in relieving severe depressive symptoms, which have not responded to other types of treatment. And even in the cases where ECT is clinically indicated, there are troublesome side effects, including short-term memory loss. At the high doses used in the MKUltra experiments, it caused permanent brain damage, including anterograde amnesia, or the difficulty in forming new memories, and at least one person's account that I read. So that was probably something that happened um, in even more cases. Again, damaging the brain in this manner did not do anything to promote their goal of mind control, and it did not prove to be useful as an interrogation technique either. Hypnosis, which was also used, has been shown to make individuals more suggestible, but suggestibility is not the same as mind control. People who are hypnotized are not likely to engage in behavior they would normally find morally reprehensible. And what about the psychic driving or that repeatedly playing recorded messages when a person was under sedation? You know, that makes me think of the idea that subliminal messages can impact our behavior. Advertisers have been known to use subliminal messaging to encourage people to buy their products. And David, I don't know if you ever did this, but some students have tried to use recordings played during sleep as a way to like learn new information or to study for an exam or learn another language. I think that uh, that was one of those things that you did as a last ditch sort of attempt uh, to cram for an important exam or something. I had a friend who did that. Did it ever work for him? 
uh, it was a her, and a her. I don't, yeah, I don't remember. I think that she did okay on the test, but I think that was because of the studying she had done prior to that. Yeah, it was probably unrelated to the recordings that she was listening to while asleep. Right. Um. You know what the research has shown is that it's minimally effective, if at all. In general, this method tends to be most effective when it's in line with a desire a person already has, as far as like the subliminal messages. Again, subliminal messages are very unlikely to convince a person to do something they wouldn't normally do. And the same goes for learning something while asleep. While some very basic information can be retained, there's no evidence to suggest an individual can learn complex information while asleep or that this information influences a person's behavior in any meaningful way. Although I do think sometimes it can lead us to have strange dreams. But I don't, that's just me. Again, listening to messages that go against our values or usual behaviors, that's not going to make us engage in those behaviors. Yeah, that's interesting. So you brought up this idea of listening to something over and over and over again. And this sort of is a good segue to where I wanted to start this conversation, which is a subject that we kicked around in our talks before recording this episode. And that being the kind of spectrum that exists in you know pretty much everything in psychology. Oh, yeah. So when we started talking about MKUltra and mind control in general, we had to first differentiate what kind of mind control we were talking about. So on the most extreme end, uh, you brought up the sort of like Jeffrey Dahmer kind of mind control, which was he essentially set out to create zombies that he would have like total control over, correct? Yeah, and I, I'm feeling like Dahmer would be a great topic for an episode. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so Dahmer's kind of mind control would have been absolute then. So that would be uh, the example that I would use on that extreme end. On the other end, mind control is something that I think we all have to deal with and sort of consent to on a daily basis. So, so let me explain. You know, in past episodes, we've talked a lot about issues that I would say are akin to this topic. Everything from dealing with bias in research, especially unconscious bias, to... And this is going back, you know, to the conspiracy episode. They're not needing to be a conspiracy because we have consented to allow things to just sort of be a certain way as a cultural norm without even questioning them. So, for instance, when I brought up the idea from Noam Chomsky that, you know, there doesn't need to be a conspiracy, he was really referring to how we are manipulated in many ways to willingly give our consent to things in our culture that many very sane people might actually find appalling. So, speaking of Chomsky, in the past he's done a lot of work around the idea of how the masses can be programmed, so to speak, to believe certain things through the use of different means, but mostly through propaganda. So again, this is one of those words that we all basically know what it means, but essentially this is the use of information to lead people in one direction or another, or even outright deceive them. So remember when we were talking about getting to the truth in the information age? Yeah, and how challenging that can be. Yeah. So another downside of this is that now it's even easier to deceive people through the skillful manipulation of information. And we seem to see this more often now than ever before. Many of our so-called you know, news pundits make no bones about the political orientation that they come from when reporting. If we can call it reporting, yeah. the news. Right, right. I mean, it, it used to be that reporting was just giving facts, not opinion. Right. So now we have people who come from very clear political orientation. So news stories are told in such a way as to give people an impression that may not be fully accurate. 
and to invoke many times some intense feelings in them. Many of us know that this is something that's done, but it's sort of one of those, yeah, but what are you going to do kind of things, right? Right. We know we're being manipulated in many ways through the control of information, but it's such a normal part of everyday life that we just kind of accept it. To me and to Chomsky, this can be a form of mind control. You know, it's interesting. There is a lot of data and research that's been done by large corporations on how to market products to people. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of interest in that because then they can make money. Sure. So research that they don't often share because they don't have to. This is privately conducted and maintained research. Right. It's not public. But there are literally hundreds of subtle and not so subtle messages that are broadcast out there to the masses that we receive every day that essentially tell us that we're not good enough in some way, shape, or form. Not good enough, that is, without the product they're trying to sell us, ah, right? Ah, right. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. Corporations specialize in manipulating people into believing that wants are actually needs. And this is how they sell us stuff we don't really need. But most of us know this on some level, and we give our sort of implicit consent to it. But our system of consumer capitalism is a system that requires constant growth, which is fueled by, you guessed it, constant consumption. There have been many funny cases of how propaganda has been used in the past to convince people of things that were patently untrue. For instance, the whole orange juice conspiracy. That's what I call it. Oh, the orange juice conspiracy. <laughs> we don't call... drink orange juice in our house for this very reason. Right. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Well, you know, and I call it a conspiracy, you know, facetiously. But let me explain. So years ago, and don't ask me when because I don't really remember, you know, uh, th and this is from a book I read some years ago entitled Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Nutrition. And it was by a guy named Dr. David Rubin uh, back in the 1970s where he dissects a number of myths that we've come to believe about food. The orange juice myth is just one of many myths that he explodes in the book about the amount of vitamin C that it supposedly contains. So while orange juice does contain vitamin C, it's really not much of it compared to a number of other very basic vegetables. He drew a comparison with the amount of vitamin C in a jalapeno pepper, which for its size packs way more vitamin C than oranges do. The idea that orange juice was so packed with vitamin C was actually the result of a well-orchestrated marketing campaign by orange producers at the time. Through cleverly devised ads and so-called research studies or whatever, they were able to convince the public that orange juice was really, really good for you. And that's just one example. But Dr. Rubin's point, I think, was how, with the use of propaganda, essentially mind control techniques that you can create narratives to convince people of all manner of things. So I'll give another Dr. Rubin example. Have you ever noticed the term enriched on bread or pasta? Oh yeah, or cereal. I mean, any sort of, of product, processed product like that. Okay, good. So basically, all this means is that they sprayed some chemicals on the pasta or the bread or whatever to add nutrients to it. Nutrients that were stripped away when the whole wheat was processed. In reality, it wouldn't need to be enriched at all if it were left whole. The reason why flour is processed is so that it can sit on a shelf or in a silo for long periods of time without bugs eating it. Well, bugs don't eat processed flour, generally, because it has no nutrients in it. They're smart enough to understand that. Bugs are. 
Not humans. Not humans always, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, that stuff is the stuff that tastes the best, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bugs can sense it, that this is like, this is no good. I'm not going to eat this, right? right? And so, because all the nutrients have been taken out of it, including the fiber as well. So, anyway, enough about food. So, you get the point. I think one of the most insidious ways we see this form of mind control used is as it can be applied to creating fear. So one of the terms that young people, and I say that, you know, geez, that just made me feel really old. I think we are really old. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the terms that you hear some of the younger people use is FOMO. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that's what fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Exactly. It's just an acronym for it. That's just what I've heard young people call it. But the truth is we all suffer from this. This idea is that if you're not in the quote unquote in crowd, you're going to miss out on that great party that everyone's talking about for the next year or the concert or whatever it is. Corporations love this idea because it can make it very easy to market to people who are afraid of missing out on something. All they have to do is convince people that they're going to miss out on something if they don't buy whatever it is they're trying to sell. Nobody wants to be the one at the table that doesn't have the new iPhone, right? Right. Yeah. And yet we'll overspend for things we don't really need because an artificial need has been created by a false narrative for the purpose of selling a product. So this leads me to the next topic that I wanted to explore about the mind control sort of thing. And that is that being the writing of official narratives or the stories that we take to be true in history, you know, historically. And I'm pretty sure that most people are familiar with the idea that typically history gets to be written by those who win the wars. Yeah, of course. Right. In other words, whoever has the most power gets to create the official narrative. So this leads to a a book that I know a lot of people are probably familiar with, and that's um, A People's History of the United States by historian Howard Zinn. So one of the interesting things about this book, regardless of how you judge Professor Zinn's politics, is that he wrote the book to deliberately challenge the official narrative of how the United States was built. To do this, he tried to take the perspective of all those who were marginalized during the construction of the United States as we know it today. People like slaves, immigrant workers, Native Americans, the labor class, women, etc. What made this book so powerful, I would argue, is that it challenged the official narrative so well. Now, The book is political, so whether or not you agree with his politics or not, the idea of it is interesting to me because it really illustrates how strong narratives in the form of stories can become sacred in our society and our collective mythology. So sacred, it seems, that we can be quite shocked when an alternative narrative comes along to challenge these ideas. To me, controlling this narrative by limiting alternative viewpoints or the access to information can indeed be a form of mind control. So, you know, interestingly, education, especially post-secondary education, and the university system is supposed to be a beacon of light in this regard, right? Right. A place where there can be a free exchange of ideas and where intellectual exploration can sort of bloom. That's the theory, right? That's the theory. Yeah. Okay. But a number of current events have also brought this into question as speakers with unpopular views get canceled or shouted down without the opportunity to speak or whatever. This has happened a number of times recently in places that are typically known for being supposed vanguards of free speech. So again, those in power get to control the narrative and by extension, often the hearts and the minds of people. 
You know, two episodes ago, I brought up the writing of Gore Vidal. Interestingly, one of the things he deliberately avoided was going to college because he thought the education he would receive there would be more of an indoctrination into an official narrative of history rather than to allow him to seek the truth for himself. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so instead, he, you know, he basically he finished uh, preparatory school. He actually went to a very you know, well-known and established preparatory school called Exeter. And after that, he joined the army. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And he, and he just started working and sort of educating himself by, you know, obviously reading a lot. And, of course, he went on to become a very well-renowned scholar and intellectual. Very influential. Oh, absolutely. You know, essentially, he went on to debate William F. Buckley Jr. That was what he was most famous for. Right. Right. Essentially, he wanted to avoid having his mind controlled by the academy. So that's a form of mind control that I wanted to bring up. And I wanted to look at the use of like the other ways that we do sort of influence uh, and control the minds of people. I did want to bring this back to the use of psychedelics, though, you know, um, as a transpersonalist, this is this is the part that really sort of interested me about this topic. You know, the use of psychedelics to make people more suggestible. I know that we will get to a more focused discussion on psychedelics, which is, after all, a huge research topic in transpersonal psychology at some point. Yeah. You know, so recently, Jessica and I have been enjoying the loosely and I call it loosely, you know, um, in a funny sort of way, historical series called The Great on Hulu. Oh, it was so good. It was funny. It It was was really funny. Yeah, great story. Um, Which is based on the story of Catherine the Great and how she became the emperor of Russia. It's really funny. I love Russian history, but without giving away too much of the story, I wanted to bring up one scene where the head of the Orthodox Church and the religious advisor to Peter the Emperor in the series at the time, is waiting for a sign from God. In the series, he takes some kind of psychedelic, I think it was psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah, probably. Probably, right? So as to invite this sign from God. Catherine, who is planning a coup, is able to convince the head of the church that she's actually an angel sent from God and is able to get him to do her bidding and influence Peter. That is a very good point. So that was a situation where it did work, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny scene. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it really went down like that. Yeah, probably not. But it, it does kind of speak to what we were talking about. Right. And he's out in the garden tripping and she's like, okay, this is what you need to do. You know, I'm an angel and you need to. And I can't remember what she got him to do. Right. It was to influence her husband, Peter. Right. So, and it's a funny scene. And I think that many drugs, like alcohol especially, have typically been used to manipulate the minds of others. You know, comedian David Tell once joked that things like the morning after pill and the taser have all been invented due to alcohol. So for sure, it's well documented that alcohol can give our frontal lobe the night off, so to speak. So the much more emotional brain can sort of take over and play around. And people often do things they normally would not do because the executive decision maker, the part that inhibits us, is sort of put to sleep. Psychedelics, however, are kind of different. Historically, psychedelics have been used for ceremonial or spiritual purposes They're meant to dissolve boundaries that can limit our conscious awareness in the day-to-day. Obviously, there are those that would use them for fun too, but the true potential in psychedelics, in my opinion, lies in how they can, by changing our consciousness, challenge deeply held beliefs and narratives that we never thought could or would be challenged. This is consciousness expansion. 
Anyway, you and I, Jessica, we watched a cool documentary on Netflix entitled Have a Good Trip, Adventures in Psychedelics a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was it was entertaining. Yeah, where they interview a number of celebrities about their psychedelic experiences. Truth be told, I also encountered a number of psychedelic proponents in my transpersonal studies as well and had many conversations with them about their research. I was a federal officer at the time, as I am now, so no, I did not partake in any first-hand research myself. So just putting that out there. But it's true that there is a lot of research going on now with psychedelics that had previously been prohibited, given that they're Schedule One drugs. So we're getting a lot of new information about the role that they play potentially in um, treating mental mental health disorders. Absolutely. Finally, finally, it seemed like that research was shut down right when it was really starting to take off. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, as in the movie that I mentioned, the idea that set and setting can define the psychedelic experience has always been fascinating to me and that there is an interplay between what we bring to the table with the power of psychedelics that are being used to produce the overall flavor of the experience or the trip, so to speak. I promise that we'll have a real expert on to talk more about this. Um, One of my dissertation committee members actually co-authored a book about integrating psychedelic experiences, both psychological and spiritual, so we'll definitely have to get his opinion on the matter. But the point I'm trying to draw here is that the intention we go into the experience with matters a great deal in the form of how we set up the experience. To give up our secrets, we have to be in a state of consciousness where we are experiencing love and trust, I would argue, you know, for those around us. In order to do this, the stage has to be set with intention, and I would argue that this is what they could never figure out with the MK Ultra experiments. Being duped and dosed into a psychedelic state does not set a stage for trust, empathy, or any kind of shared consciousness. It seems, at least in this regard, to do something quite different, which is to just get them high. Or make them think that they're losing their minds, which is very scary. That's the exact opposite of kind of trust and and feeling safe. Absolutely. There was no work being done here to coax the gifts of the psychedelic experience out of the substance. An example of this might be the ritual and the container a shaman creates before leading participants into a psychedelic experience, say with ayahuasca or peyote or something like that. There are ancient technologies that are used to do this rather than, you know, some scientists using these drugs for nefarious means. That is to get information out of people. And this is something that I'm pretty sure the CIA didn't really care about. How do you create a psychic container in which someone who can experience something so profound that they're willing to share their deepest secrets with someone else? But that's our mechanistic, scientific, myopic view. It's just the chemical. So dose the hell out of these people and try to manipulate them, right? Yeah, and it, it obviously didn't work. So, you know, the other question that I was kind of thinking about is could something like MK Ultra happen today? So for me, in my opinion, I would never want to say never, but I think it would be highly unlikely that such research would be conducted today. You know, back when these experiments began, there were looser and really almost no standards or requirements for human research. Since the time of MK Ultra, institutional review boards, which review research studies to ensure they don't harm participants, 
and ethical codes and guidelines addressing the use of human participants in studies have been developed. As part of the research requirements, researchers must provide participants with information about the research, including any potential risks. Deception is only allowed in rare circumstances, when again it does not pose any significant risk to participants, and even then the true nature of the study must be revealed as soon as possible. Conducting research on vulnerable populations, such as psychiatric patients or prisoners, is even more tightly regulated, and all for good reason. Had some kind of oversight been occurring in MKUltra, these experiments wouldn't have occurred or they would not have been allowed to continue for as long as they did. So what do you think, Dave? I mean, do you think that something like this could happen today? Oh, absolutely. But, uh, you know, (laughs) I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, so in terms of that. But, you know, I mean, again, the military, the CIA, they're not supposed to operate domestically. So technically, you know, officially, they're not supposed to conduct experiments like that on people. I mean, I don't know. There was the whole conspiracy about mutilated cows that supposedly the military, there was some black ops conducting very you know strange things with our uh, livestock and you know farmers and ranchers would go out and see their cattle mutilated and so again the official version is that the cia is not supposed to do things like this especially not to its own citizens you know they're not supposed to do anything domestically but they i think that you know black ops and secret um government agencies they probably can do whatever they want would be my guess. All right. So, well, I guess we will see if that's a conspiracy theory or not, right? Yeah. You know what's <laughs> sort of funny? Um, and I wanted to bring this up just at the very end here was how you were talking about Gottlieb bringing LSD to the United States yeah. for the purposes of trying to establish a form of or techniques for mind control. Right. Isn't it ironic, and I know this was brought up in another one of the articles that you that you brought up, that this became such a tool for the American counterculture to do quite the opposite, which is to actually expand consciousness, to free minds, rather than to control them. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have commented on that, that irony, you know, that that was not at all his intention and that it's completely gone a different direction. So I know that people who are invested in the spiritual ramifications of the use of psychedelics, certain psychedelics, particularly uh, psilocybin or peyote or ayahuasca, believe that these technologies are actually possessed by spirits or they contain spiritual energy. Mm -hmm. And so... To use that or try, try to manipulate that kind of spiritual energy for some sort of nefarious purpose, it bothers me. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. You know, maybe that's something we can talk more about when we get into more uh, a deeper conversation about psychedelics. But these are spiritual energies that I'll, many would claim that you're messing around with here. And they're not going to allow you to use them to manipulate the minds and hearts you know, of other people. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting and I I am really looking forward to having, you know, more in-depth discussion about psychedelics and about um some of the research that's been done and and how it's being used in different types of of therapy. So, we'll definitely that's a uh to be continued conversation for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. 
But we're going to wrap this one up. But if you have something to add to the discussion, you can do that on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also shoot us an email from there. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And thank you to everyone who's reached out, who's given us ratings, and who's written reviews. We really appreciate it. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please share it with others. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.